Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Chickermain, and I'm joined here with our newest co-host. I'm Joe Varielli. Our guest today is Dr. Jason Howard. He's a medical science liaison at Sanofi Genzyme, a biotechnology company that develops and commercializes therapeutics across a broad range of therapeutic areas, including lysosomal storage diseases, rare blood disorders, oncology, and immunology. And actually, in the early days before they were acquired by Sanofi in 2011, Genzyme had a reputation as a specialty biotech with a focus on developing enzyme replacement therapies for various rare genetic disorders. Uh, Dr. Jason Howard is also an alumni. He got his PhD um, and did his postdoctoral fellowship at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Um, His PhD was done in the pharmacology program. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Before we get into your background and and your journey, um, could you just briefly introduce us to Sanofi Genzyme and some of the work you are doing there? Yeah, sure. So I started at Santa Fe about two and a half years ago um, as an oncology MSL. So providing field medical support for two of their drugs. One of them is cabazitaxel, which is a prostate cancer taxane. And the other one is simipolmab, which is an anti-PD-1 currently indicated for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, So that's how I broke into pharma. I had a bit of a pinball career heading into there. Uh, yeah, I've done a little bit of medical writing. Uh, I, I did some research work for a, a small biotech in Baltimore. And uh, so I, I've done a little bit of this, a little bit of that, some consulting. Uh, and so now I'm in, in the pharma role and I, I really I really enjoyed it. So it's a way to consolidate a lot of the things I already did and, and really see the impact in the field and and hopefully uh, get better information to our customers and provide better care for our patients. Cool. So you mentioned that you have a little bit of a pinball uh, (laughs) journey. Let's take it all the way back to the PhD days. So you completed your PhD and postdoctoral fellowship at Johns Hopkins. What was your experience like for you at that time? And how were you thinking back then about your long-term career goals? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. So um, I, as a bit of background, I did my graduate work in melanoma translational research. So I used to study the notch signaling pathway in, uh, in melanoma and looking at how that could potentially be druggable. Turns out it's very difficult to drug. So the translational ability of, of that information was a bit limited, but you know, uh, you pick a project and, and you, and you do it and you get your thesis done. Um, and then that lab moved out and another lab moved in. So my graduate, uh, my graduate advisor was Dr. Rhoda Alani. She became the head of dermatology at Boston University. Uh, and Dr. Christine Chung, who's now the head of the head and neck program down at Moffitt, moved in and uh, she needed a postdoc. So I was there. I needed a postdoc. And uh, I started studying head and neck cancer and HPV positive head and neck cancer and the role that PI3 kinase and mTOR plays in, uh, in, in progressing that disease. So that, that was my scientific experience there. I'd say, you know, culturally and as far as training goes, 
it's second to none. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, one of the things that I think separates Hopkins from the other top institutions is the degree of collaboration. Um, I think the strength of the work that comes out of Hopkins is directly proportional to the degree of collaboration. There, there the, the level of ego at Hopkins was shockingly low. And, you know, people who are at the highest echelon who should have no interest in speaking to a graduate student uh, would be able to pitch in on your project literally at any time. And that, you know, between that experience in my graduate work and in my postdoctoral work, um, it made it very difficult to leave. Uh, I looked around at other institutions just to, you know, they always say you should broaden your horizons. You should try to mix up your, your resume to have a, a greater breadth of academic locations. Uh, I didn't want to go. <laughs> it was, there was no reason to. Um, I found that the culture was just wasn't the same at these other places. It just wasn't worth it. Um, the reason I left was because, uh, you know, I had an idea for a cancer vaccine of the local biotech really agreed. They, they wanted to try to co-develop it. So that, that's just an opportunity I couldn't pass up. And it was going to have to be something pretty significant to get me to leave Hopkins. Why did you end up choosing to take the route of, of joining with this Baltimore-based company rather than to try to develop that within Hopkins? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, maybe that would have been two things. Maybe that would have been different now. Uh, I think it was a different time. Uh, discussions around tech transfer weren't nearly as common. Uh, discussions around sort of that Hopkins spinout was kind of in its nascency. Uh, it was definitely there. <clears throat> it was definitely starting, but I don't think it's as common. It was as common then as it is now. So I'd say that's one. And two, the idea sort of blended some proprietary information that the biotech had. So it wasn't exactly mine. It was kind of a, a different way of looking at the data that they already had. And so it was a good collaboration from that perspective. It would have been difficult to fold Hopkins into that mix. How did you even get connected? Was that work that was related to something that you were research? How did that connection even get established? Yeah, that was place? a weird one. Uh, so I won the John Rangos Award for creativity and cancer development. And it was just kind of like a Ansari X prize, right? And you come up with something, if money was no object, what would you do to try to solve metastatic cancer? And so in the pitch that I presented, I, I ended up winning. Um, and that got me a little bit of local press. That local press got me on the radar of a local investment group. That local investment group was in, it were investing in a cancer vaccine company. <laughs> so it was kind of, you know, um, it was one of those small to more experiences where, uh, you know, everybody knows everybody and all you need is one thing in the, in the sun paper and then you're off to the races. So it was kind of one of, kind of one of those deals. That's so cool. Yeah. I think we know that all too well. Yeah. <laughs> so during your time at, Vaccinogen, mm -hmm. um, not only were you a co-inventor on a project and you were managing some scientists there, but it also seemed like you fulfilled some of the other job functions there, like in terms of business development, yeah. marketing and generating investment literature. What was your experience like in diversifying your skill set beyond just research? 
That was a huge learning experience. Um, when you get into biotech, particularly small biotech, you wind up wearing a lot of hats. And sometimes that's a really good thing. And sometimes that's a really bad thing. You can get really caught underwater by getting too many projects or you get stretched into places that maybe your skill set doesn't match. Uh, I like it. I like taking on more responsibility. I like learning new things and diving in. And, you know, I think in some respects, that's sort of a PhD approach. And I've, I've found that in, in pharma as well, that the PhDs that have an eye on the business world have a very systematic way of attacking problems. And it's really, really beneficial. Uh, and, and what I've found is that the training of any PhD, really, I mean, it doesn't really matter what your background is, is that you get plopped into this complicated scenario with any, with an infinite number of possibilities of which way you can go. So where do you start, right? Um, well, you start by learning the absolute minimum amount of information that I need to move forward. And that is something that uh, is really, really beneficial when you're doing project management. And it's come in handy quite a bit in, in uh, biotech and in pharma. So, you know, there are aspects of training in your PhD that are translatable into business in ways that you probably don't recognize. It's not when you're in academia and you're in the thing, you're thinking that my value is rooted in what I know. And that's certainly part of it. But your value as a PhD in the private sector also roots in project management and it roots in, in how, how you tackle a problem in a really organized and systematic way. Um, so the bridge is being able to have conversations that relay that. So to tie it back to vaccinogen, one of the reasons I started wearing more hats and one of the reasons I wound up becoming in the MSL role after um, vaccinogen uh, uh, ended up folding because, you know, look, biotechs fold. That's what they do. Uh, it's, it's a risky business and, and that happens. And so what you have to do is de-risk your position. So when you're, when you're in the private sector, you have to sort of take stock of what are my skills. So for me, it's writing. For me, I learned at Vaccinogen that having very direct and clear conversations about complex scientific topics and then what those opportunities are is really a value proposition in and of itself. And it's something that just isn't taught in academia. It's nice if you can do it. It's nice. Oh, he gives a nice presentation or, you know, oh, oh, she, she really describes her her research really clearly. That's nice. But what you what you find out in the private sector is that it's its own value proposition. Yeah. So so moving on to your experience at um, Sanofi Genzyme and, and uh, the medical science liaison field, mm -hmm. uh, the medical science liaison role is sort of under the field of medical affairs in general within the healthcare enterprise. And I'm hoping that you could just give us an overview of the broad field of medical affairs, its relation to drug development and marketing. Yeah, I wish someone had explained this to me when I was in grad school because uh, it was completely foreign and, and it was really not, there's been a lot of growth in that space since then. So I think it's becoming more common to understand about it earlier. Um, in a nutshell, my feeling for medical affairs is that it really kind of helps bridge and support R&D and commercial. So the best way to explain it from the bottom up 
is out in the field, you have a field team that's broken into two halves. One is medical, which is us, and the other is commercial, which are sales reps, right? Sales representatives selling selling drugs, the commercial aspect of selling drugs and pharmaceuticals. Um, they are on commission. So the more, the more drug they sell, the more money they make. That's the incentive. Where's the limitation? The limitation is that they're not allowed to speak to anything that's not on the label. Everything that they're allowed to speak to promotionally must be on the label. Obviously, the conversations that they're having with clinicians, they go into off-label territories. Um, they'll go into investigational territories. And because they are on commission, they are legally not allowed to speak to it. Uh, the government, in its, in its wisdom, I mean, this is a good idea, or if someone says, hey, I know you sell this drug for prostate cancer, but I'd really like to use it in my bladder cancer patients. Well, if someone's on commission, they might very well say, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> but just because they think it's a great idea doesn't mean it's in the best interest of the patient. So one of the functions of medical affairs is to provide that medical support. Have people with uh, terminal degrees who can go in and have substantiated uh, conversations. Those people are not on commission. They're on a flat salary. So there's really no incentive to try to maybe push something that isn't indicated in a specific place. And we also have the scientific training and the understanding to be able to have a peer-to-peer -peer conversation and say, um, you know, where do you think this field is headed? Where, what are you interested in this disease state? And so the, the MSL, the medical science liaison, starts to become sort of a two-way conduit, right? Are there medical strategies that the company wants to come through these people compliantly into the field? And are there conversations about clinical insights to what's going on with these patients, to what's going on with the disease state, to where the field is headed that can come back to the company and then help drive strategy? So what happens is those insights end up coming back to the company. They start to get discussed. They get passed around the different departments and then they start going up the medical chain. And so medical affairs is really saying, okay, what is the medical future? You know, commercial wants to maximize sales because it's a private industry. They, they want to make a profit um, for medical. It's how do we position this asset in a clinical sense? What types of other clinical trials are available? Um, you know, clinicians will, for what's called an investigator-sponsored trial. We're the ones who end up managing that. Um, if a medical information request comes in that's off-label, that comes to us, we answer that. So you need to have that separate function from commercial to provide that unbiased clinical support. And that's, that's what medical affairs does. Narrowing down into the role of medical science liaison, what do the daily responsibilities of an MSL look like within a company and how much do those responsibilities depend on both the size of the company or the stage that the product is in in development? Hugely dependent on all those things. So uh, there's no common day in the day of an MSL. There just isn't. Every, every single day is different. Some people don't like that. I really like that. I, I like that um, I didn't know what was going to happen on any given day. And I could kind of tackle it and manage it the way I want. So uh, that I liked. Uh, some people don't like the uncertainty. Um, the, whether it's the size of the company, that hugely dependent. The smaller the company, uh, the less likely they are actually to have a medical affairs. That's one. 
um, because medical affairs is, is costs money. It doesn't make money. So you need to have um, products that are bringing in revenue. Um, the smaller you are, the more hats you're going to wear. Uh, the more, so the smaller you are, the more risk you're going to be taking, but also the greater chance for reward. So, you know, MSLs in pharma often don't get stock options. MSLs in biotech very often will, right? They'll, or they'll get equity even, uh, depending on how early it is. So are you, if you're willing to assume more risk, you could potentially reap more reward. Um, that said, you wind up wearing a lot more hats, just like a biotech. So, you know, you're going to get pulled into a lot more things. You could be, your work-life balance could be negatively affected. So it really depends on, on, on what you want your life goals to be. In a large pharma company, like, like Sanofi Genzyme being part of Sanofi Global, uh, we found, I found that the work-life balance was, was fairly reasonable. Our, our job is somewhat more narrow in scope compared to a smaller company, but uh, the way I describe it is we're sort of the Swiss army knives because we're dealing with clinical insights. We are managing KOL relationships. We are presenting investigator sponsored trials for internal review. We are educating our sales reps. We're educating the speakers bureau. We're educating um, community docs in the field. There's, there's a lot of different avenues that um, our talents and our knowledge and our skill sets are applied. Uh, and I like that. I like the fact that it's sort of a, it's a very uh, Swiss army knife type of role. You have to have a lot of different things. Um, I would say the most important thing, you can always get trained up on disease state. You can always get trained up on science. If you've learned something one way, you can learn another. It's the soft skills that are actually very, very difficult. Um, it's finding that combination of scientific understanding and sort of EQ, emotional relationship, you know, an ability to understand that when you're in a meeting with a KOL, is this being received? Do they want me to go? Uh, am I boring them? Do we need to wrap this up? Because uh, if you don't manage that relationship uh, appropriately, you'll never see them again. And then you're not going to be very successful in what you're trying to do. So um, that's kind of, in a nutshell, managing the field from an individual perspective and then seeing how those activities then contribute to the greater whole. Yeah. So I'm just curious, what different types of KOLs do you typically interface? You mentioned clinicians are one of them, but are there mm -hmm. many different types of KOLs that you interface with? Yeah. So key opinion leaders come in all different stripes. Um, and it really depends on what types of products you're supporting. So for example, uh, the prostate cancer drug that I was supporting, gabazitaxel, uh, that would, I would be meeting with medical oncologists to see, because they're the prescribers. I would meet with urologists because they are managing early stage patients and they need to know when to refer those patients to medical oncology to receive gabazitaxel. Uh, radiation oncologists are often part of the multidisciplinary team that manages the care of those patients. So that is prostate cancer. My other drug that I was supporting, semiplomab, 
that the first indication was cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. So now I'm not only meeting with medical oncologists who focus on dermatological malignancies, I'm also meeting with dermatologists because they're the early management of the patient. I'm meeting with Mohs surgeons because they're often the ones who cut out the first, second, and third iteration of that tumor. Um, and so it really depends on what drugs you're supporting and what disease states you're supporting as to what subspecialties you'll be engaging. On that topic, how does one go about fostering new relationships with KOLs? And is it really a, a cold interaction? Is it through networking? Um, and then how do you maintain contact with those KOLs that you've already engaged with? So the first half of your question is the hardest part of the job, no doubt. And it's gotten a lot harder. Uh, I try to explain that this job has had a, quite a shift in COVID times, right? So the last time I had an infield in-person engagement was the first week of March. Uh, so everything I've done has been virtual since. And so that shifts strategy. So in the grandest sense, um, you know, let's just <laughs> in pre-COVID times, how about we say that? Um, the One of the best places to start networking and build relationships is conferences. You have a lot of people in your disease state or your, you know, uh, drug state or whatever you want to call it in the same place at the same time. They're not seeing any patients that day. Oftentimes they'll have um, postdocs there or uh, fellows there or manning the posters and you go, you know, talk to, to if I'm supposed to meet with this KOL and they've been hesitant to meet with me, I can start networking with their lab. Right. And start understanding because, you know, they want to talk to somebody. They're just standing by their poster. Right. And then uh, if you hit it off with them, perhaps they'll introduce you to the hard to reach KOL. Um, it used to be that it was difficult to sort of cold email. Right. Um, so that sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. It depends on what the ask is. If you're very pointed, why you want to meet with that KOL. Sometimes that works. If you're just doing a general introduction, Email doesn't work particularly well. It can, you know. Uh, oftentimes, you'll use conferences as an excuse to send that email. Say, hey, look, we normally meet at ASCO. Uh, I saw you're going to be presenting. I'm going to be there. So I, I try to make the best use of my time at conferences. And, and you know, then you have that natural face-to-face -face interaction that you can leverage later. Hey, remember me? I was the guy at the poster. Instead of, uh, I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> right? So... Um, that, that's one, but now that's gone, right? We're not going to be having that face-to-face -face interaction at conferences. So it's going to be, it's going to be very, very difficult. I, I am sympathetic for anyone trying to break into the field right now as a new MSL, because it's going to be tricky. It's going to be very, very tricky. And, uh, I don't know how much access KOLs are going to give to us on a digital sense over the next year. Um, it's been okay now. It's been great to maintain relationships. It's been difficult to start relationships. Maintaining has been okay. And I just hope that they continue to see the value that we provide. And so from some of the metrics we've been seeing from KOL surveys, it seems like that's the case. They still wanna stay engaged with medical affairs because new questions pop up. Um, now maintaining, I would say when the pandemic started, uh, I really, really, really appreciated the approach that Sanofi Genzyme took, which was incredibly hands-off. 
look, we don't know what's coming. We don't know how busy these people are. We don't want it to appear that our interests are superseding their interests, which is managing patients in a time that we don't know which way it's going to break. And we don't know how much extra time you have. Uh, so we actually, not we, our department drafted a letter that just said, hey, look, we're going to stay hands off. We're going to give you the space to figure this out. And that was, you know, March and April. And that started to lift in early May. And we just want to let you know that we're here to support you. And if something comes up, you know where we are. But if it isn't, you know, uh, please do not feel any pressure that you have to meet with us or, um, you know, anything else is. So I, I and I think that was received very, very well um, because it really demonstrated that this company cares about patient management. It wasn't necessarily, you know, dollars and cents and, and what's best for business. As a medical science liaison, you're really directing the two-way flow of information, right? Information about how KOLs can learn about the company's pipelines and products, but also conveying information that KOLs are telling you, maybe opportunities or potential gaps and bringing those back to the institution. Um, So my question to you is, what is the nature of the information that's actually gathered in the field on behalf of host institution and how is that information conveyed to the host institution? Yeah. Uh, so the, the second half is the easiest part. So I'll, I'll tackle that first. A lot of these companies will have what's called a customer relations manager or management system. Um, basically it's an app on your iPad and you have to, well, for us, because we have off-label conversations and we, and we have these medical meetings, we have to document everything that we do and we say to a degree. Um, and so that's one of the differences between us and commercial. And so those meetings are tracked from a metric standpoint and from an accountability standpoint uh, for compliance, right? So that's kind of how the manage, that's how the information is managed to unpack it front end, what is important? Boy, um, you know, what are new targets that you feel are disease state ready? You know, what, where do you see the field headed? Um, we, we don't ask direct questions about competing products. Uh, it's really not, that's really not what we're interested in. However, if those comments are made, you know, hey, I saw the new data on the competing drug there, and I'm not going to use that. And here's why. Whoa, that's really important. This 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 clinician may not be alone, right? Uh, and what if they're not? What if they're not alone? And and ooh, that really could speak to the strategy. Okay, so now let's say I submit that insight. Someone in California submits that insight. Someone in Texas submits that insight. And now the medical director looks at this and says oh, hey, we have an opportunity here. This competing drug is not going to be used for X reason. Let's make sure that we have education around that reason. So now you start to see how a collection of insights start to drive strategy, right? And that can, all right, so now they're not prescribing that drug for that reason. Well, that's in the patient's best interest. And if we have something that doesn't have that reason, it's in the best interest of patients for clinicians to be educated about that, right? So that's kind of like a hypothetical way. Um, 
that we're looking at the conversation we're having with a clinician because they're the boots on the ground, right? They're the ones who understand. Um, very often I'll have a conversation with a KOL and they'll try to tell me something that they think I want to hear because it's something good about one of the drugs that I support. Oh, you're really going to love to hear this about cabazitaxel, you know, because you work for Sanofi. And those are really good moments to draw a line and say, I don't want you to tell me what you think I want to hear. I want to know how these patients are being managed because if we don't have the truth, then we can't optimize patient care. If you're just telling me something I want to hear, well, then now I'm getting a skewed vision of what's going on in the field. And that's not in anybody's best interest, right? Um, you know, and, and I'll, or I'll ask a question about disease state that has nothing to do with bazitaxel or semiplomab. And I've even had the KOL say, why do you care about that? That has nothing to do with your drugs. Because like, we need to know the field. We need to know what's going on. Did that question, will that question impact patient care? Yes. Then I need to know what you think about it. And uh, it's really puts us on even footing with clinicians. And um, you know, oftentimes sales reps, the, the statistics right now are that sales reps get anywhere from three to five minutes with a KOL. And uh, MSLs get over 30 minutes. And that's because, and it's not necessarily the fault of the sales rep. They're put in an untenable situation. They're really limited. I mean, they are legally limited into what they can say and what they can talk about with these people. Um, and frankly, most of the academic KOLs know that label backwards and forwards, you know? So they're a bit set up. For us, and another way of looking at insights in the field is that we often look at the field as separated into kind of two halves, academic institutions and community institutions. Academics, you're talking to someone who has really carved out a narrow slice, has, has become an expert in that one slice. And guess what? I'm not there to teach that person. <laughs> okay. And that meeting is going to go poorly if that's going to be my approach. Let me tell you, look, buddy, I published the paper on that. You're not going to tell me anything, right? So that's where I'm sitting in a listening role. I'm here to learn about where the field's headed. In the community, oftentimes you'll have KOLs who see a high volume of patients, but they see a lot of different things. You know, So in my experience in oncology, you'll have a general medical oncologist. Okay, They need to know a lot about a lot of things. And so sometimes because they're not a, a narrow field expert, uh, they can have gaps and deficits. Oftentimes they're so busy, they want me to come in and tell them what they need to know. Hey, what happened at ASCO this year? I didn't get a chance to review it. Anything big, anything nice? What should I know? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about it. So you, you see how your, your value changes depending on, uh, you know, that KOL is not going to be the clinician who's going to submit an investigator-sponsored trial, but the academic KOL will because, hey, look, for this reason, I've got this other target. I think this drug would go well over here. Great. Here's the portal. Put in the application, and we can talk about managing and, and shepherding that idea uh, through the review process. So it's um, <laughs> it's, it's 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 tricky. There's a lot to do. There's a lot going on. You really have to. The way I'd say it's like spinning plates. You have a lot of these different functionalities that you have to keep track of. Um, and I, you know, I thought it was fun. So in searching for insights, I know in my own experience, 
I often use, you know, social media or other technology to mm -hmm. actually um, look and identify uh, thought leaders and, and try to follow what those people are doing in the scientific community. Um, and, and that's helped me have an understanding of, of what the cutting edge of technology looks like. How have social media and, and other technologies shaped your field? Yeah. And is that something that you think about on a day-to-day -day basis and in, in trying to get engagement from someone who might have um, a lot of listeners? I do, and I'm biased. So um, I would say that social media analysis is an underutilized source of insights in medical affairs. Uh, it's difficult. It's, it's time consuming. If you're not a large company, it's expensive to get the tools that you need to do it efficiently. Um, all that said, I think med, and I'm biased here, but med Twitter is probably one of the best uses of Twitter. Now, I, I look at technology as uh, agnostic. You know, people say, oh, well, Twitter's bad or Twitter's good or Instagram's bad or Instagram's good. Like, yeah, nuclear power is bad and nuclear power is good, right? Technology is agnostic. It depends on how you use it. There's a lot of garbage on Twitter. That said, in the medical communities, they are highly um, organized. The conversations they're having are very substantive. People are becoming key opinion leaders in locations that they never would have been able to do that. Um, you know, we kind of take it for granted at Hopkins that virtually everybody in the hallway is the expert in the disease state that you're looking at. That's not always the case. And, you know, you can have someone at um, a smaller institution and if, they're, if their concepts and their ideas and the way they're looking at these problems are relevant enough, they can build an online following no matter where they are. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of that. I started a social media monitoring program for medical affairs in Santa Fe Genzyme and it's really taken off and it's really become a really fantastic source of real-time information. You know, when you're in the field, those one-on-one -on -one interactions and the insights you gather in them are very, very important, but they're on a different time scale. And if you have an FDA approval and you have the ability to get a general sense of what the field is thinking within 48 hours, that's valuable, right? And so it's a question of putting yourself in the position smartly to do that. And there are ways to do that. There are ways not to do that. Um, you really, one of the reasons I think a lot of companies don't want to tackle this is because there are concerns around what's called pharmacovigilance. If I open Pandora's box and I find something I don't like, I now know about it. <laughs> and what do you do with that information? Uh, legally, if, if I'm in a conversation with a KOL and they say, yeah, you know, uh, I infused your drug last week and the patient died. And I think it's related to the drug. I have 24 hours to report that to the company. Uh, and if I don't, the FDA can come knocking, right? So that's an issue. Pharmacovigilance and post-marketing uh, monitoring is a real issue. And so companies have maybe shied away from it a little bit, looking at social media because they don't want to know necessarily what may be discussed. Honestly, there's no way of avoiding it. 
this is what the way the world is headed. 20 from 2018 to 2019, the Twitter volume around ASCO went up 40 some odd percent. It's becoming more and more important. St- you know, consequently, the conversations are becoming more substantive and more important. Uh, and frankly, I thought Sanofi Genzyme should have a seat at the table. What you can't do, especially as an MSL, is jump on Twitter on some account and start saying, you know, that's not quite accurate. What you said there, you can't get involved. You can't get engaged because we can't have the perception that we're being part of promotional. So we are solely in a, in a collection and in a listening mode. What are the conversations that are being had? And so then how do you use it? You can use it to drive strategy. You can use it to find new KOLs that you were unaware of because they don't really have a publication track record yet. And you can leverage that information in your personal meeting. Hey, I saw on Twitter last week that you were interested in X, Y, and Z. And now you've done a couple of things. One, you've validated to the KOL that they're being listened to, right? Oh my, I'm, someone paid attention to what I said, right? Uh, and that always feels good, right? And that's the whole point of why they're putting it out there in the first place. And then the other thing is now you you don't have to feel around for what this person thinks. You can jump right into it. I know what they think. Let's get to a deeper level. And we provide the most value in medical affairs when we get what we call the next level insight, which is first level. Uh, Dr. So-and-so said that they like to use drug X over drug Y. Okay. Well, that's, that's a piece of information. The next question is, well, why? Why do they use drug, drug X over drug Y? Well, because of this. Oh, that's something we hadn't heard of before. You know, and so it's peeling away those layers and trying to understand what the strategy in the field is so you can inform your own strategy in the company. So if we could sort of, you know, come full circle here and, and talk about the MSL role and, and really breaking into that first role, mm-hmm. uh, what are some of the things that you can do while you're still a graduate student postdoc to try to prepare yourself for a, uh, an MSL role? And what are some of the ways that you can really um, put yourself in a, a competitive position for those roles? I used to think that PhDs had a huge advantage in this realm because uh, we're so mechanism driven and we understand how all these things work. And it turns out that that's wrong. The terminal degrees that have the biggest advantage in being an MSL are MDs, PharmDs particularly, and RNs. Why? Uh, They've managed patients, (laughs) okay? And when they're talking to clinicians, they've been part of multidisciplinary teams. When, uh, when When a comment comes up from a KOL about a patient management issue, they can commiserate. They can understand, they can empathize, sympathize, all these things. And we can't. That's a big knock against us in this realm. And the worst thing you can do sometimes, depending on the KOL, is you wind up in a very clinical conversation and you steer it back towards mechanism and it's a place they didn't want to go because, frankly, they don't care. That's a big problem for us, uh, being mechanism-driven PhDs and, and not having had time in the clinic. So how do you overcome that? You find ways to make your background as clinical as possible within the PhD realm. So how does that look? 
for me, uh, medical writing was a big help. I ended up writing about a lot of different things, uh, not just oncology. I ended up writing in different disease states that broadened my horizons. Um, that's one. Two, the labs I worked in were always for MDs. Uh, my, uh, Dr. Alani was an MD, Dr. Chung was an MD, and they were translational. You know, the, the marching orders in those labs were, if, if this experiment doesn't get us closer to the clinic, don't do it, right? So I was already used to having those strategic conversations about what is clinically meaningful, and that's important. The other avenue is clinical trial management. So uh, as, a, as a graduate student or as a postdoc, you can get involved whether your PI is a PI on clinical trials or not, you can still talk to clinical trial management groups within your institution and get involved. Get involved with um, patient recruitment. Get involved with clinical trial management. You can do it as an as an adjunct to your training. You know, some of the best courses I took in grad school were the ones that got us in the clinic, that were shadowing. Right. Um, I, a lot of clinicians are very open to shadowing. Get involved with that. Get in the clinic, see how it runs, see how the conversations are, see why things are organized the way they are, and really understand what issues are important for clinicians. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission full catalog of episodes. I'm Roshan Chickermain. And I'm Joe Barrielli. Thank you for listening. <laughs>